You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Really, the art of stillness, it's something we don't, we just don't do. And you know what else I, I really liked about his, Pico in general is he's just... He's really approachable. He's uh, one of the things he, he didn't tell is a story that he was in um, Japan on business, and while he was there, he just saw such a different world, and he and he be, he was called. He basically felt like he was called. He saw these temples, he saw um, little wooden homes, all of these incredible things. He wanted to to make a part of his life, so. He really he went to New York, quit, did did all these things, and within a week, I believe, he was back, um, or relatively quickly, he was back to Japan. Now, when he got to Japan, he decided he's just going to go join a monastery. So he went to a temple, joined a monastery, and you're like, oh, wow, what a guy, Pico. And then a week later, he quit. He's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> these people, all they do is they do a lot of cleaning. And he didn't realize how much cleaning was involved in you know, monastic <laughs> commitments. And so he moved about a block or two away from the monastery in this small little place, apartment. And that's where he, he started his life and then ended up creating and finding his wife and her children and then ended up creating, again, a fairly monastic life, he felt. Um, but was able to offer more of himself um, than just instead of just the cleaning. So anyway, powerful thing. And where I, you know, a lot of people are, aren't prone to go, you know, to a monastery or aren't prone to go do meditation or whatever yoga. But let me just suggest where you might want to create some stillness is in some conversations in your life. What if we could just be more still and um, in in listening? And in hearing what people are saying, what if we just allowed more space in our talk, our conversation, so that everything wasn't always about, um, you know, me needing to compete, me needing to run away, me needing to argue, me needing to entertain you. So try just with your family, with your kids, with your spouse, creating, um, just creating peace, creating a space. Because I, I feel strongly that we need we need to learn to just be still in our thoughts and allow um, other people to influence us more. We are so into trying to convince and convert everyone to our specific way of thinking that we sometimes don't even allow that spirit to come in. And that, that spirit, by the way, is is the definition of inspiration is where the spirit is inside, is coming from within. And if you truly want to inspire somebody, sometimes the best way to do that is to just shut your flapper, (laughs) not to be rude, but shut your mouth and allow your words, allow your just sensitivity, allow your emotion, allow the peace to do the talking. And sometimes you'll find out it's a much better communicator than you ever will be. Uh, Have you ever heard the quote that says, who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. So maybe the stillness that Pico is trying to teach us can come from just being the person that we need to be and, and being the person we need to be in the way we need to be it, in the space we need to be it, at the right time we need to be it, 
it's it's that's the convergence i think of spirituality where all of a sudden everything we are in the right moment at the right time it can converge and we're an open you know vessel willing to be and do what we need to be and do in any space i know that sounds all foo-foo-y, but the reality is Think about your greatest moments. The One of the greatest moments of my life where I felt that spirit the most and stillness the most would be a baby being born. And it's pretty chaotic, right? Then there's that peace, that stillness when everyone goes quiet and the baby's there and all you do is you just hold your baby. And that – now you can breathe. And then you obviously you've got to count the fingers and the toes because you don't, you know. You got to make sure you got everything, but the peace is there. And so I think in our lives, we'll, we'll feel that a lot more. I also think that peace, I think I'm, I believe in God and I think he wants you to feel peace. And interestingly, nothing seems to kind of create more, you know, almost anti-God than just complete chaos and overwhelming, um, just confusion. So turn some things off, test it. Test Pico's advice today. Test it. I dare you. Just create space. You dare do 15 minutes? What if you just in your marriages committed to listening to each other for 15 minutes a night? Oh, really? Oh, jeez. I mean, I love her, but don't make me listen to her for 15 minutes. Come on! You're not going to get to find out who she really is if you never listen. And if you're going to try to you know, influence your partner to listen, you might want to make sure that when you're talking, it's not always negative or it's not always, you know, complaining or whatever. We've all got something to do. So ask yourself, where are you going to go implement the lessons of Pico Iyer? Also forgot to tell you, his website is Pico, P-I-C-O, Iyer, E, oh, this is going to be hard, Pico Iyer Journeys.com, P-I-C-O, I-Y-E-R journeys.com. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, a little coach's corner for you here. Isn't it interesting that the the strengths become the weaknesses? So uh, over evolution of the ma- of the body, we we needed certain traits to survive. And the body learned and you know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now all of a sudden that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. <laughs> Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives and now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? You know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know, I know I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it, but I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling 
evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense, anxious person so you wouldn't get you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries. Or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change, which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science maybe there to be the valuable bridge to to bridge our our past and our future. I mean, and a lot of the people are God fearing people that you know they don't they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something. But God also gave you science, right? He also gave you you know insight. The ability to learn and to read and to think. He gave you choice and agency. So if we're going to, you know, invoke God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. If we are going to take on the idea that 70% of the workforce in the United States is disengaged, there's obviously something that uh, is not working right, right? So we have to figure out what that is. And I guess I could just go in and coach a company or work with a company to figure out what's going on with their people. Or we could just, on the radio, try to help you figure out what's going on with you. What is it that's driving you or not driving you? And obviously, in Nikki's case, where she talks her boss from a 40-hour work week down to a 32-hour work week, took a little pay cut. But in the end, I think what she also did is she ended up basically, she knew what she was into. She knew what her driver was. She knew what moved her and what pushed her along. And I worry that many of us don't have a clue. We don't have a clue what our drivers are. So here's a little activity that I want you to to just kind of walk through with you and I want you to think about. Think of a situation when you feel that you are at your very, very best. Think of like a scenario where you uh, you have got your game on and you're nailing it, right? So – As you think about it, who are the people that you're with in that situation? Are the people – is it kind of people-centric where it's the people you're with that make it so valuable and incredible? Or what are you doing in the situation? Are you at work? Are you performing a leadership function? Are you – you know, what are you doing? And what emotions are you feeling as you are doing this activity? It's a very basic thing. What may, where are you at your very best? Well, I'm in front of the TV watching myself some Matlock and eating some Cheetos. Okay. All right. Let's dig a little deeper then. Because <laughs> if that is your ultimate goal is just to get away from work and life so you can get to TV to watch your Netflix binge, um, 
then we might be missing something, right? We might be basically missing what your driver is. Maybe your driver is to no longer be in the stressful workplace. But there's a reason why when people retire, their likelihood of uh, living longer starts to decrease and their ability to be healthier even decreases. We would think just being free from work would make us healthier, but that's not always the case. So we've got to figure out what the drivers are. Are the drivers the people around you? Are the drivers your opportunity to be creative and imaginative and inventive? Is it just being more optimistic? Sometimes work might be a difficult place for you because the people around you aren't optimistic. It's so doom and gloom, so negative. Maybe one of your drivers is to have just more playfulness or have a, a more spiritual connection to something, and you're not getting that at work. So you've got to figure out what it is that moves you. And as you look through the people that you're with and the activities you're doing, what are what's specific about the activities? What drives that activity to be so valuable to you? What is it that you are doing in that activity? Are you more creative? Are you more in a leadership role? Are you more um, you know, with people and engaging other people? Because whatever you're doing, it's telling something about you, right? It's telling you that I need to go be – I need to go be with people more. And I sit too much in my cubicle and this job is great, but it's not – I'm not where I need to be. Because if we can discern what the drivers are, for example, about being with people, then we could actually take what you do every day and start to say, how can I now engage more people at my work? It might simply be you're in a rut. You're in a habit of not talking to people in your office because, you know, you move from sales to customer support and you spend so much time on the phone talking to people that are angry that you never get to talk to the people around you. That might be why it's valuable to cut eight hours out of your workday so you don't have to do that as much. Or you've got to figure out a way to engage people. Maybe start taking lunches with the people around you. Um, once you kind of know the people driver and the the uh, action or the pattern driver. For example, I'm noticing, and it took a year and a half probably to get used to it, but the early schedule of the show is just hard for me. I don't think, I don't think our creator wants us up this early to do this show. Creator as in Don Schlein or God? Yeah, Don Schlein. Okay. No, the real creator. And he doesn't want us up this early. Don wants us up. But it's hard. It's a hard thing for me. And but then I thought, well, what did I used to do during this time? And it was just sleeping. (laughs) Wasted time. But man, it allows me to do what I love to do. And it allows me to be with people that are great. And it allows me to engage my emotions and my feelings in a healthier way. So it's kind of worth it, right? It's worth it. But in the end, that's a decision every one of us needs to make. What drives you? Do you feel like you're using your best gifts? How do you want to be remembered? These are all questions that you could be asking yourself. At your funeral, what would you want everyone to say about you and how you worked? What do you want your kids to say about what you contributed to in your professional life? I remember hearing at my grandfather's funeral what a great man he was. He built a company, but also how many lives he helped. 
how many people, how many families he took care of, of his employees that had had problems or, you know, this was back before the day where everyone was insured and in a mining company. What do you want your family to say about you and how you worked and how you changed lives? These are all questions that can help you get deeper into what drives you and what motivates you. Just go start uncovering it and see what it teaches you. And then let's see if we can't start adapting our life a little bit more to it. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Is green energy the answer to the boom and a creation of a boom in the economy? Is it real or is it just an illusion? Well, here to speak with us today is Dr. Heidi Garrett Peltier. She's an assistant research professor in the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And uh, we're so honored to have her with us today. Dr. Heidi Garrett Peltier, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks a lot for having me, Matt. Is okay. Clean energy. Um, first, I guess define for us what is clean energy. Uh, well, that, that's a good question because I don't think there's necessarily one standard definition. But uh, clean energy generally is taken to include both renewable energy and energy efficiency. Um, so it's uh, energy that has lower carbon emissions, um, things like wind, solar geothermal power, hydropower, um, and uh, to some extent, bioenergy, but it depends on what kind of bioenergy we're talking about. Some bioenergy can have high emissions um, and then some uh, much lower emissions than fossil fuels. But generally, we're talking about energy that has low carbon emissions. So when we talk about then a a clean um, energy economy, we're talking about building a financial economy around all of these and growing all of these uh, more, I guess, sustainable, cleaner energies. That's right. Yeah, we're talking about using less energy in general, so making our our energy system more efficient. Um, So we we minimize the losses in uh, a lot of the energy that we use. And then um, when we do use energy that we're using, cleaner energy, uh, energy that that burns um, less carbon. And and Hillary Clinton in her campaign is saying, in a way, it sounds like much much like um, Barack Obama, President Obama did, that she's going to come in and she's going to be the the clean energy president and create millions of jobs through clean energy. I hope so. <laughs> that's I mean that's what that's the goal, right? That's what she's saying. Is it feasible? Um, is is there money to be made? Are there jobs to be made really in the clean energy world? Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, the, the, the campaign promises that we hear from the Clinton campaign of clean energy having the potential to create millions of jobs, uh, the research shows that that is actually true, that, um, you know, clean energy, as I said, includes both renewable energy and energy efficiency. And both of those industries have uh, a lot of potential to create manufacturing jobs manufacturing uh, the, the components that go into wind turbines, manufacturing solar panels, 
manufacturing the, the various energy efficiency technologies. Uh, so those, that kind of revitalization of our manufacturing sector can happen as we're creating clean energy technologies. And then installing clean energy is something that can happen nationwide. So not just installing solar panels on roofs or uh, utility fields um, or installing wind turbines, but making our buildings more efficient. Every community has inefficient buildings that can be weatherized, that can be made more efficient. Um, homes, commercial buildings, um, in, industrial facilities, um, that can happen nationwide. So there, there really is a huge potential for job creation that is really geographically dispersed. Because, I mean, really what we're talking about would be to some degree and to some percentage, the replacement of the fossil fuel industry. Right, right. So there, um, you know, what the climate science says is that over the next 20 years, we need to bring down our carbon emissions by 40%. And the only way to do that is to have some retrenchment of our fossil fuel industry. So some cutting back of oil, cutting back coal use, cutting back uh, natural gas to some extent, although that's the, the cleanest of the three fossil fuels. Um, but uh, fossil fuel production will need to come down and be replaced by clean energy. Mm. So if I'm a coal miner in West Virginia and I'm hearing that, oh boy, green and clean, <laughs> great, Is right. what should they be thinking? Um, uh, let's say that they're a 30-year-old, their, their family grew up in the coal industry, but they're younger. They, the future, if the future is going green and clean, is it – there is an economy for them there. there there's some, there. There is a job. There is a pathway for them. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, to, to the extent that they can really get behind the transition to the clean energy economy, um, there will be, you know, more hope for creating industries within their communities. So if we think about um, where to situate manufacturing plants, you know, as we, um, as we create more and more renewable energy technologies and uh, energy efficiency technologies that need to be manufactured, we can, we can locate those plants in the communities that are most likely to lose jobs from fossil fuel. So if we create a manufacturing facility in West Virginia that uh, coal miners can be retrained and work in those facilities, um, that, that's one of the ways that we can sort of soften the blow and give people a chance to, to move into an industry that really has potential for the future. Um, and so, so to the extent that coal miners can be um, sort of at the table when we're discussing how to transition to this clean energy economy, they will be better off. Um, but the, the other thing to keep in mind is that not everybody's 30 years old who's a coal miner. Right. So we do need to think about the people who are closer to retirement, who are not going to be retraining for a new industry. And um, so there's work being done, including here at this institute, um, around the concept of a just transition. So thinking about how do we make these workers whole, how do we make these communities whole so that they're not just losing um, from moving to a clean energy economy. So mm. whether that is um, funding a program to pay people for early retirement so that they are just as well off as they would be if they could continue in their coal mining job. Um, so thinking about how do we soften the blow, how do we make the, the communities and the individuals just as well off as they would be while also doing something to advance um, the, the cause of clean energy and sustainability. 
Is it because um, it's a big risk, right? If because you're going to need money to to help with this adjust transition stuff, um, is it? I, I guess a concern I have is it seems like a lot of money was invested by President Obama uh, to kind of spark the clean energy movement, and then uh, stories came out of that, like Solyndra and others. Are those was was the investment by President Obama? A successful investment? Did did it glean great lessons, and was it productive, or was it overall more just stories of Solyndra? No, I'm so glad you bring that up because Solyndra is the the name that we most associate with um, the sort of failure of a government yeah. program. So Solyndra was a solar manufacturing plant that got a loan guarantee through the Department of Energy through the um, the stimulus package from 2009. And Solyndra went bankrupt, and all we've heard about is this program doesn't work. Look, this company went bankrupt. Meanwhile, Solyndra and other companies like that only made up 2% of all the loans that went out through the loan guarantee program. Mm. So the other 98% have been successful. And as of even as of a couple of years ago, as of 2014, um, the the bankruptcy of Solyndra and uh, I think one or two other companies came out to less than um, 800 million dollars of lost uh, loan repayments from the from the loan guarantee program, and the payment on the interest of all the successful loans made by the Department of Energy came out to more than $800 million. So mm. even as of a couple of years ago, the American taxpayer is already ahead, um, that we've already brought in more in successful loan repayments than the, the losses. But we've only ever heard of the losses. So I'm, I'm really yeah. glad to brought that up. Yeah, because it really, yeah, it seems like it's just a uh... Solyndra is the one that everyone could hang their hat on, right? And and exactly. so everybody's like, yeah, see, it's a failure. In the end, I guess, is it – why – I mean, I'm thinking if I've got coal in all of these states and I've already got infrastructure, I already have transportation, trucking, I've got the people there, it's working. Isn't there a way to do both while we're moving into – uh, kind of a cleaner energy. Isn't there a way to, to create cleaner uh, coal plants to create and use some of our advancing technology to create cleaner systems in the places that already exist while we're ramping up the others? Well, you know, from my perspective, we don't want to be expanding the fossil fuel industries in any way because that's not going to get us closer to our climate goals. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is when we hear numbers like 40% reduction in uh, fossil fuel use. You know, that's not something that's going to happen overnight. This is a 40-year program. So, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a 20-year program. So, so the reductions in fossil fuels, um, coal specifically, there's going to be a small amount of job loss each year. It's not going to be a, a major industrial shift. Um, and while that's happening, we're ramping up our production of clean energy. We're becoming more energy efficient. Um, there will still be coal production. We're not talking about eliminating the coal industry. And I think that's, that's one thing uh, that's kind of a common misperception of, oh, we're just going to get rid of fossil fuels. That, that's not going to happen. And over 20 years, you know, even a, a reduction as big as 40%, when we break it down year by year, is not going to be huge. Is it, I, I guess, in the end, is 
um, fossil fuel more economically viable than um, the viability of clean energy? Or which one dollar for dollar produces better results, better returns on the investment? If I had to, if I had to go produce or go invest in fossil fuel or currently invest in clean energy, which one would would be a better investment? Well, that's a good question, and I would say it depends on what your position is. If you're a um, you know a fossil fuel producer, uh, or if you're someone who uh, is profiting from fossil fuels, of course you're you're going to want to invest in fossil fuels. But in terms of um, you know that the average American, we are better off investing in clean energy. Um, one of the the major concerns um, in our economy is job creation, and if we think about each million dollars or each billion dollars that we could spend either on clean energy or on fossil fuels, um, clean energy creates a lot more jobs for any given amount of spending than fossil fuels do. Um, And those jobs are in a range of occupations, so manufacturing and construction and all the support services that go into that. you know, uh, accounting and uh, engineering and all of that. Um, so, so clean energy produces more jobs per million dollars than fossil fuel would per million. Right, right. It's about two and a half times as many jobs for each million dollars. What, now, why is that? Well, part of it is just the labor intensity. So if we think about out of the total spending, how much of that spending goes to workers and how much of it goes to capital, meaning how much of it goes to plants and equipment, mm-hmm. um, clean energy is more labor intensive. So uh, it's specifically in the construction sector, um, more of the total spending goes to hiring workers. Whereas if you picture something like an oil rig and uh, the, the amount of money that needs to go into supporting equipment versus supporting um, wages and mm. labor, um, fossil fuels, oil in particular, is one of the most capital-intensive industries in the economy. So it produces fewer jobs for any amount of spending. Well, and it also, if you if you look at the future, and you, I, I always just think of these self-automated driving cars, and every I just went on a trip with my kids, and my greatest newfound love is the fact that on every airplane I can plug in my um, laptop now, and I can charge my phone while I'm sitting in my seat, and I can watch entertainment the entire time. I sit there and I think that's just all energy being consumed, and. The future, it seems like, is going to be battery-powered, solar-powered, clean cars, clean future, clean engines, clean everything. Right, right. And I think especially in the U.S. where things are so um, uh, spread out geographically, you know, clean cars, um, increasing miles per gallon, moving to electrical vehicles – um, all of those are, are going to be kind of our main, uh, the main way we clean our transportation system, as opposed to, um, you know, pu- public, in, excuse me, public transportation is going to be important, and improving our rail lines going to be important. But, um, but in the U.S. in particular, cleaning up, uh, making our, our vehicles more efficient is mm. going to be a main way that we can clean our transportation sector. Oh. So much to learn. Um, Heidi, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Heidi Garrett-Peltier, and she is uh, talking to us about the past, the present, the future of clean energy. 
She is um, an assistant research professor in the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and is walking us through what a low-carbon economy might look like. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Find out what you can do to retool your life to get ready for this cleaner uh, economy. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you become the best you can. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Is clean energy the answer to our economic woes? Could it add, uh, you know, more than $1 million worth of spending per? I mean, when you think about it, you invest a million dollars. Are you going to get 15 jobs per million? Are you going to get 100 jobs per million? Well, according to our guest today, uh, Heidi Garrett-Peltier, she's teaching us that when it comes to investing a million dollars in clean energy, you're going to get more jobs out of the clean energy investment than you would out of the fossil fuel um, investment, just simply because of how they do business. One's more asset you know, investment. You have to invest in the mine, in the ground. You have to invest in the machinery. And uh, the other is one that you have to invest in manufacturing. you got to create solar panels. So when we think about changing the economy and we think about investing in clean energy, a lot of people will have a bad taste in their mouth because it is displacing many workers around the country. But if it's also part of the future, if it's the key to the future, then it might be time to to start learning what we can do about it. Dr. Heidi Garrett-Peltier is joining us today. Again, she's an assistant research professor in the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thank you so much, Heidi, for being with us. Thanks very much for having me. So if I'm uh, just any any worker in the you know kind of fossil fuel industry, and it's sad because, like, you know, they've moved to other techniques of fracking and other ways. And uh, it seemed like the oil industry was having a boom. And then it was even impacting oil prices around the country. And then OPEX did all their crazy stuff. And now all of a sudden puts a lot of workers out of business here in the U.S. I guess having a clean energy economy would eliminate this global gamesmanship. Well, it's true. It, it would eliminate a lot of vulnerability. So there's the, the gamesmanship that comes from, from OPEC, from oil-producing regions, um, their ability to, to manipulate the price of oil. And we are all, you know, not just people working in the fossil fuel industries, but consumers of oil products, we're all vulnerable to that. Um, and then there's also the, you know, the national security issue. So if we're going to war to protect oil resources um, versus being able to produce our own energy domestically, um, that is, uh, you know, some, something stable and something that's not uh, subject to resource wars, that's also a question of national security. Mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are arguing that we did, we went into Iraq to get the oil and right. and uh, it's just cost us a lot of lives and energy and people and resources and time. What do you, what do you, what do we do? So if you're just the average oil worker or the average, you know, whatever age, how do I retool? How do I go get into 
this clean energy economy and take my skills and upgrade them? Uh, well, there are there are retraining programs. There are a lot of um, institutions like community colleges that offer green energy or um, kind of. Um, green occupations, whether that's in engineering or specific things like home energy auditor or, um, uh, you know, the thing is a lot of the occupations in the clean energy economy, a lot of occupations in renewable energy or energy efficiency are occupations that already exist in our economy. They just happen to be with a clean energy um, company. Label, yeah. So, right. So for some people, it's it's not even going to be that much retraining, and a lot of that can actually be on-the-job training in the, the companies, the clean energy companies that will be hiring. Um, you know, for, for some people, it will be, as I mentioned earlier, if they're closer to retirement, it might mean earlier retirement, and then we need to, as a country, I think we need to be aware of that, be cognizant of that, and have funding for the communities and the individuals who uh, are later in their careers and are less able to, to retrain. Um, but there are a lot of education uh, programs out there for clean energy and, uh, as I said, on-the-job training. Is it – because I guess so much of this is just politicized, right? And we have major battles going on. I mean, and there's big, big money behind it. And so a lot of misinformation campaigns out there and, you know, those environmentalists are trying to ruin everything. Um, in the end, though, it's, it just seems smart if if we are energy efficient, if we are also energy independent. It just seems so much better. And yet um, there's – the battle continues. Why is it, do you sense, that people aren't picking up on this This is as quickly as you would think they would? Well, you know, part of it is a misinformation campaign by um, entrenched fossil fuel interests. So there are research institutes that are funded by the Koch brothers that are funded by um, fossil fuel industries that want to protect their own interests. And so we hear studies about, you know, the benefits of fossil fuels. But if you look behind who's funding those studies, um, you can often see, you know, where, where the interest is. Um, so, so part of that is, uh, I think, deliberate misinformation. And then part of it is just a lack of information. So um, that there's just not enough word being spread about the benefits of clean energy, about the affordability of clean energy. Um, there are so many different incentives that make clean energy affordable for individuals and for businesses. And those can be tax incentives or grants or zero-interest loans, um, all kinds of things that people can take advantage of that they aren't even aware of. So part of it, I think, is just a matter of really getting the word out. Hmm. It's just, yeah, it's communicating. And I guess some of this is just inevitable, it seems, with time. The more I learn about Tesla and see their cars that have all this power and energy, I mean, it used to be, in my mind, that an electric car was you know, kind of like a Barbie doll car. Right. And um, it wasn't manly. It wasn't cool. I'm, I'm the kid that grew up with an electric lawnmower that okay. I was the only guy in the neighborhood with an electric lawnmower because my mom worked for a vacuum company. And um, Sunbeam, by the way. And one of the things, but it wasn't manly. And I saw all my neighbor kids pouring gasoline in theirs. And I'm like, oh, you guys are all men. I'll just go vacuum my lawn. But there's something about 
there's there is there's kind of almost a machismo to some of this. I think for the guy, this the average guy buying a car. Do I buy an electric car? Do I buy a? But in the end, it's it's the future. It seems it's like where we're going. Every car manufacturer now is going to have self driving electric cars in the next five to ten years. Right. Right. And, you know, and, that, and that's a cultural norm, and hopefully that norm changes with time, um, and hopefully people seize the, the opportunity to own electric vehicles, and, and that that becomes the sort of cool thing, mm-hmm. um, rather than having a gas guzzler. And I guess, too, once you start investing more money into it and having an infrastructure, I mean, I remember thinking and wanting to buy a, um, a natural gas-powered vehicle, years ago, but there wasn't an infrastructure. And there's still not a great infrastructure yet for electric cars. Um, but it also, you know, you hear of other companies now, Mercedes, Porsche, uh, Porsche, all these companies are now combining to help start building this infrastructure. Right, right. And that's going to be an important part. And so there are, you know, there are the, the early adopters who are driving their electric vehicles or driving their hybrids. Um, but as, you know, more and more uh, charging stations, uh, whether those are public charging stations or charging stations at um, at people's offices or homes, as more of those become available, people will see the the convenience. And uh, you know, right now, I think there's this um, almost a fear that uh, that that it's harder to be self-sufficient, that there mm-hmm. aren't, you know, it's not like a gas station on every corner. There aren't these electric charging stations on every corner, but that will change over time. And I think people will become more and more comfortable with the idea of having an electric vehicle. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we just saw it in our neighborhood. Everyone in my neighborhood's putting up solar panels and, but it's so confusing and complicated and you've got to now pay two bills or three bills and your solar panels still aren't covering your costs, even though you're producing a lot of energy. And it's, I, I think this is just, we're just all kind of in the chaotic stage of this. And it seems like over time we'll settle in, policies will be better, technology will be better, and the aesthetics will look more pleasing eventually. Right, right. Well, Heidi, we appreciate your insight. Uh, keep up the great work. Eventually, you know, it'll all just be clean and green. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, if I could just mention that if people want to check out some of the work we've done on green growth and on clean energy, they can come to our website. We have lots of publications freely available. It's www.peri.umass.edu. Peri.umass.edu. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Heidi Garrett Peltier. Clean and green, folks. It's the future. And... It doesn't mean, you know, you can't have power, you can't have a good life. In fact, it might mean you have a better life. Uh, But it is. It's going to cost some people jobs, and we can't get around that. We still ought to show compassion for that as well. I mean, imagine you're losing your livelihood. It's, It's a big deal. People fight for that. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up hour number one of the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, wouldn't it be great if you could be so self-sufficient that you could collect all the energy you need on your own uh, just at your house, right? You just turn on your you just turn on your solar panels, and 
you collect all the energy you need every day. You don't even need to connect to a grid because you can just self-sustain. That could be very important when it comes to a zombie apocalypse. If you want to survive a zombie apocalypse, you got to be self-sustaining. Well, I think in those regards, Utah would do pretty well. In fact, there From is a, a food storage point. Yeah, because yeah, we, we've got a ton of food here. We've saved a lot of people here in Utah have, have a storage of food, uh, three months or so, depending on, you know, depending. I, I can't eat that many things of rice, tins of rice. I have so many buckets of rice. Got to get the beans. And after being to Costa Rica, I I can't eat any more beans and rice. <laughs> um, the Here's some cities. least, According to Huffington Post, the cities least likely to survive a zombie apocalypse and the cities most likely to survive a zombie apocalypse. Uh, basically, this was a study put together by CareerBuilder, which is playfully touted as the totally practical and 100% feasible. It examined 53 of the largest metropolitan areas. The areas were ultimately judged by their defense against an imagined zombie-inflicted virus, their ability to contain it, and their ability to find a cure and a food supply. Okay? The cities at the bottom of the list, the top 10 worst cities you do not want to be in, bottom of the list, New York City. That makes sense. Tampa, Florida. Los Angeles, California, Riverside, California, Miami, Florida, Atlanta, Georgia, Buffalo, New York, Tucson, Arizona, Chicago, Illinois, or Detroit, Michigan. If you are in any of those cities and there is a zombie apocalypse, you are dead. You are zombies. Wow. Just letting you know. I've lived in L.A., so that's kind of scary. Maybe I have something that's very slowly now you know. starting to develop. That's right. Now you know. Now, if you want to, to survive a zombie apocalypse, you better move to Boston. Move to Boston, Massachusetts, Kansas City, Missouri, Salt Lake City, Baltimore, Maryland, San Diego, Seattle, Denver, Virginia Beach, Virginia, Hartford, Connecticut, or Minneapolis, Minnesota. Folks, if you want to survive the zombie apocalypse, you got to get to one of those cities. See, this is the information you don't get on other stations you don't get on other shows go green and clean and move to one of those top 10 cities and you're you're pretty much protected from all that could harm you we'll take a break that's hour number one stick with us next hour more fun right here on the matt townsend show you're listening to the best of the matt townsend show this is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Um, you know, one of the things uh, that is just so interesting, we have our way of thinking, right? And, and we've always, you know, we've always had bases. Why would you even question it? We've always had them. We need every single solitary one. And we you don't know we do or we don't. None of us have any information, really, about any of these bases. Well, yeah, my uncle lived on one in Okinawa. Great. And he says it was awesome. And they had the best ice cream. Again, all I care about is let's just get some data. Let's get some information in here. But... If we don't – again, in the United States, we closed a lot of bases. And do you remember all the 
hullabaloo, all the junk that was being said about how that was destroying this country. And in reality, we showed that we could do it and it happened and it I'm sure it impacted a lot of lives. I'm not saying it doesn't impact lives. It does and we survived. But what we need now may not be a huge city base within a country to run our drones out of. We're in a different world, folks. Remember years ago we needed airplanes. We needed – 100,000 people being able to move and being able to base somewhere. Now we can send drones in. And why I think it's important is we, if we can't talk about it, then we're doomed to stick in this. And if we keep this just a base mentality alive, um, then I guess we just keep going. And if any other country had the same mentality – then you'd have to be okay in a few years with China building a base or Germany. How would you feel about Germany building a base in your town? A base, a military base, and German airplanes are landing in your neighborhood, and German drones are flying around your neighborhood. And then every once in a while there's an accident with a German truck And then, hey, if the Germans got one, the Italians will need one. And we probably ought to get Brazil one because they're up and coming. Right? I mean, it's crazy. We'd never have it. But I guess Germany's supposed to be okay with American bases. And, you know, Italy ought to be fine. We're just, we're just love. Just think about it. If we had a Japanese base, people would think that's crazy. Why? Why do they need a base here? So notice, we're the only country doing it. And um, if we're the only country doing it, and especially in a lot of these countries that are pretty safe, and I'm not saying we don't need to have a base. We do. There's certain places we need one. But in Europe, we may not need 20 of them. We may need one mega base. I don't know. It just seems like a business idea. And holy cow, wait till that idea gets in the hands of Donald Trump and he needs to start cutting to find money. Are you kidding me? That's how the wall's going to be built. It's scary. Anyway, folks, if we can't talk about it because it's sacrosanct, then how on earth do we ever move this country forward? You could go get $50 billion to, to invest if you want to. Invest it back in the military if you want to. Okay. But, man, you got to be able to talk about it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging, our happiness levels, right? And so as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring, and it's you know it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event because now all of a sudden – You've got nothing but time to just you and your honey to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work. And one person may have been the kind of stay at home person. and The other was out in the workforce. And now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home. So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement 
And so if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently, the divorce rate goes up about 16 percent when you and your honey are left alone with no more kids in uh, in the uh, in the nest. Is that crazy? 16 percent increase simply because. Now we've got to work at it, as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work, and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire, then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to, sh- to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, you'd think like, well, no, duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's going to look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and, and the major you know, breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home? What does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? You've got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have? Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, Travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motorhome and become members of the Good Sam Club and travel all over the country? Is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part-time? You know, information, very basic conversation. Think about it. Have you had the conversation? By the way, that's a great conversation to have whether you're retiring or not, by the way. Every one of these are. Um, Another second conversation I'd be focusing on after you've had the resources conversation, have the time conversation. You know, many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other. And a lot of people, when you first fell in love, that was great. Oh, my word. It's so exciting because we have nothing but time together. But you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out. How much each other is going to need? How much space will your partner need every day? You got to figure out what your time is versus their time versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just going to be together. I, I promise you, I've seen many a couple once they're together, it, it goes south because now we now what? Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning. You're going to watch those shows all morning. Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. 
What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that you know your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do. If they're, if they're cohabitating, for example, women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting, sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. Are we going to – how are we going to distribute the work every day? You got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So, how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home, what are we going to do inside the home? Are we both going to work outside of the home? What happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids? You know, who's going to make dinner every night? Who cleans up the dinner? I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about how we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation, the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire. And Andrew Steptoe brought it up. It's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical. Okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great, let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring. What do we want our legacy to be as a couple, as an individual as well? What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say at your funeral? What do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, this is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now we need to maybe strengthen some relationships. We need to start you know, working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are, are resources we can be using But what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? 
What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing? How do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, each, maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show, because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the, in the marriage, and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please listen to what your partner is saying. We've got to figure out what they want because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long-term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time, if you keep encroaching on their time or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues, And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. Folks, that's the Coach's Corner. I highly challenge you, suggest that you get out there, have the conversation. And you know what? You don't need to wait for retirement. Legacy, distribution, time, resources. Four conversations, one relationship. That's the Coach's Corner. Thanks for joining us, my friends. We're going to take a break. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, You know, before you skip another workout, you might want to think about your brain. A provocative new study finds that some of the benefits of exercise for your brain health may evaporate if we take to the couch and stop being active, even for just a week or so. And that makes a big deal with more and more of our population aging and more and more issues of dementia, cases of Alzheimer's impacting our society. So we wanted to bring in uh, one of the authors of the study, Dr. Carson Smith at the University of Maryland School of Public Health, who is researching how exercise may help and uh, prevent uh, Alzheimer's and uh, pick his brain, no pun intended, um, about exercise and brain health. Uh, I guess talk to us first of all, and then we can get more into, you know, Alzheimer's focus. Talk to us about your your study that you did about taking a break from exercise. First of all, what does exercising actually do for the brain? What are the benefits of exercise? What what are the benefits it has on our brain? Well, the benefits of exercise on the brain are um, actually far-reaching, and um, exercise is been shown, first of all, to produce neurotrophic effects, so um, the growth of new neurons and also um, angiogenic effects, so the growth of new blood vessels in the brain and new capillaries that help supply um, oxygen and nutrients to brain tissue, um, but also it, it reduces inflammation in the brain. Um, it, it probably also helps to you know, increase the branching of dendrites. Uh, so it, it essentially helps to uh, maintain neural connections and neural networks. Isn't that interesting? So physical exercise um, 
is going to give us more neurons, better vascular health in the brain, more blood flow. It's 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 just pumping up the brain. Yeah, that's right. It's and this has mostly um, been shown through animal research, which is you know allows you to be a little more invasive with the procedures. But there's now evidence in humans also that you know, these effects, and in particular, in one region of the brain called the hippocampus, um, that. Um, shows very strong neurogenic effects um, and stimulation of new neurons through physical activity. And what does the, what's the hippocampus? What is its function? Well, the hippocampus is a structure. You have um, two of them actually on each side of your brain, and it's critical to all learning and memory. So, anytime you're taking in new information um, and you're rehearsing it to remember it, um, the hippocampus is involved in that um, rehearsal. But then also, it has projections up into the cortex of the brain that allow the storage of that memory then for long-term retrieval. Hmm. And and with more and more of our population aging, uh, issues of memory, dementia, Alzheimer's, um, I mean, this is great timing for this research. Yes. So, yes, Alzheimer's disease in particular attacks the hippocampus, and it's one of the first brain regions that um, begins to um, show neuronal death um, with the Alzheimer's disease pathology. Is, so, so exercising improves these, uh, this area uh, and, and improves blood flow and the creation of neurons and, we're, and influences the hippocampus. Talk to us about your study, um, about how you went about studying what happens when you don't exercise. Sure. So, so these were um, an exceptional group of people, master athletes who have a very you know strong training history and, and these individuals are not your typical older adults so that's one thing to keep in mind as we talk about this um they have about a 29 year history of endurance training and you know they're running about 60 kilometers per week and um competing in you know national and regional endurance events but um nevertheless so they're very very fit individuals and um and we know that exercise, and you probably have experienced this yourself, Matt, when you don't exercise for 10 days, um, if you've been training, um, you notice a very fast decline in your ability to keep on running mm. after you don't exercise for yeah. 10 days. So we were looking really at that idea that, well, if this happens in our cardiovascular system, um, could it be happening in the brain also when you detrain? And so we had these master athletes um, stop training for 10 days in a row. And um, we had to call them to make sure that uh, they weren't training every day um, because it's difficult <laughs> for them to stop their exercise. Yeah, they were addicted to training. <laughs> right. So it, it, was a, it was a stretch for them, but they were compliant and um, they were happy to help us. So they stopped training for 10 days. And what we did is we measured um, just sitting or actually laying in an MRI scanner at rest, um, looking at their brain blood flow. Um, they weren't doing anything in particular, just resting in, with their eyes open. And what we found is that um, brain blood flow decreased over that 10-day period in several brain regions. Um, in particular, um, the hippocampus was huh. one of the regions where we saw a decrease in brain blood flow on both sides of the brain. Wow. So, I mean, and again, uh, and then did you retest them um, did you, when they got back on their regimen, did you retest them and find out, does it return? Unfortunately, we were not able to do that. Uh, we, had, we were working off a small budget here mm. to do this study, and so we, uh, we weren't able to get them back into the lab. Um, it's probably the case, though, that um, they did have a rebound in their brain blood flow. Um, and I'd also like to point out that 
10 days of not exercising um, didn't um, push their brain blood flow down to zero. So right. obviously, you know, um, there's probably a, a floor that would be reached, you know, um, for brain blood flow. And and these people also, you know, there were no cognitive um, deficits that were observed. You know, they obviously maintained their brain health quite well and ability to function, um, as most of us can attest to as well. Um, but, but, it's, you, but you could imagine that if somebody hadn't exercised for a year, that not only would the blood flow go down, I mean, the cognitive abilities would be impacted as well. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah, so we... The the scientific evidence for that idea is is lacking, but um, you can over long terms of time, and when you look at large epidemiological studies, where you look at people's self-report of their physical activity, and you look at um, who then is at risk for a diagnosis of memory loss later in life, um, exercise does um, have a protective effect. So people who are more physically active or more physically fit are less likely to show a decline over time. Whether that takes one year or several years mm-hmm. um, is is an open question. Um, and also there are probably um, genetic predispositions and other diseases that if you have them also would put you at increased risk. And if you combine that with low physical activity would just you know kind of exacerbate that risk. Yeah, in fact, um, I, I look at it like uh, if you're if you are seventy years old and you injure your knee, I mean, it could be the beginning. I mean, it might if there someday you can find the correlation between the lack of the blood flow, lack of exercise, and uh, increased um, or decreased uh, neurological abilities. That's um, it seems pretty. It's, it seems like a, a pretty natural thing. The older we get, the less we might be able to exercise. Plus, anything else that would decrease our blood flow to our brain or our hippocampus could also be causing some of our uh, you know, inability to remember. I mean, it's a, I guess this is, this is your job as a scientist, and this is some pretty cutting-edge research, is, is the future of this going to eventually give us more insight into Alzheimer's and other, other issues? Well, that's my goal. My uh, my research line is dedicated to understanding how exercise, in particular, might uh, might um, be a protective for people who are at increased risk for the disease. Um, and so we're we're interested in studying people who have genetic susceptibility to the disease and whether or not exercise um, may be protective for them and actually um, improve their um, cognitive function over time, but also um, delay any progression of the disease. Um, as they um, age and um, and perhaps even you know have other factors going on like they might have high blood pressure or um, diabetes that also puts you at risk for Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Um, so exercise is interesting because it's pleiotropic and it affects all of the systems of the body simultaneously, and and it helps with all of these peripheral disease pathways like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity. Um, in neuroinflammation, um, you know, stroke risk, that all of those factors um, put you at risk for Alzheimer's disease, and exercise also helps to alleviate those disease states. So exercise works across many different pathways in the body to protect us. Mm. And it really, it, again, this is, this is our future. This is, this is a big deal. We'll take a break. We'll continue the discussion with Dr. Carson Smith in just a minute. We're talking the brain benefits of exercise. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Exercising your way back to brain health, is it possible? Well, according to our guest, Dr. J. Carson Smith, he is a University of Maryland School of Public Health researcher, and he's talking to us today about how exercise may help prevent Alzheimer's. It at least uh, we what we're recognizing is it does produce certain effects on your brain. Um, neurologically, it, it stimulates it more. It creates uh, more blood flow as well, and um, and helps uh, potentially with. Uh, the part of your brain that is more responsible for memory and and retaining memories, your hippocampus. Um, talk to me about this physical activity in your study. Does it does it matter if you when you start exercising and the impact it has on your brain? Like if if you didn't exercise in your youth, but you start doing it when you're thirty or forty later in life, maybe fifty, does does that still have the same effect? Absolutely, um, although. It's not really clear um, if you exercise for a lifetime, if you have a greater benefit. Um, But what has been shown is that um, no matter when you start, if you start um, when you're younger and you um, continue until your old age, or even if you begin exercise um, when you are an older adult, say around age 60, um, there are still benefits and protection against memory loss um, for people who even start exercise um, in their older years. Um, It also seems clear, though, that if, if you're physically fit and active when you're young, and then you do nothing into your old age, um, that that may not necessarily protect you, that there's really a need to continue to be physically active through your life. And um, But the, at the same time, if you haven't been, you can pick it up and you can still benefit from it. Is there a, a minimum amount that you need to exercise? Well, there are guidelines that have been published, of course, um, through the American Heart Association and the American College of Sports Medicine that indicate that you know, each of us, all of us, um, should be engaging in 150 minutes, or you know, 20 to 30 minutes um, per day, five days per week, or you know, at least most days of the week, we should be doing something that's of moderate intensity, whether that's walking or gardening or doing um, some household chores that are moderate intensity, like walking upstairs with your laundry, um, or doing traditional exercise like walking on a treadmill or you know, in a gym. Um, so, you know, at a minimum, we should all be doing. Um, thirty minutes most days of the week, mm. and and really, it's it's whether it can be directly tied to Alzheimer's yet or not. It it's still going to impact you cardiovascularly, so it'll improve your heart health if you have heart issues. It will probably help um, even if, if, with diabetes, with your weight management. It's going to help you in so many other ways, which also contribute possibly to Alzheimer's. Absolutely. And, you know, many times, uh, you know, our our brain and what goes on in our brain is we don't really understand what's going on. You might experience, you know, high blood pressure or, you know, some other symptom of uh, of pain in your body or, you know, your doctor may be able to detect that you have some kind of heart problem. Um, But when it comes to our brains, it's very difficult to detect on an early stage, you know, what type of risk we're undertaking. And by the time a memory loss actually occurs, the damage to the brain has largely been done already. And so um, it may be difficult, you know, at that point to try to do something about it. Uh, and so prevention, you know, and really um, understanding that over time, these benefits are going to accumulate um, over years and protect you. Because we, we know it's funny because you know when you don't exercise, like I just went on a vacation and when I don't exercise, you know that the minute you have to get out and exercise again, your body 
pays for it and you feel that lag. But we don't ever think about the impact it must be having on our brain. But if you – so if people are out there and they're noticing they're sluggish and they're, they're, they're just not as quick on their thoughts and it's harder to remember things, don't just assume you're getting older and it's happening. It simply might be we need more blood flow. Sure. Yeah. It, of course, uh, we do age, and all of us are going to decline. And of course, you know, we all die in the end. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but certainly, and certainly, there is a natural process where, as we get older, we lose our our speed of processing. You know, we're not as fast. Our reaction time slows down. You know, we we don't remember as well. And there are normal declines, and so we don't necessarily. Um, have to think that well, all of us are going to get Alzheimer's disease uh, if you know if we don't do anything. Um, but there is a way that we can also maintain that function and maintain our independence, really. And that's I think what it really comes down to for most people is that's the greatest fear people have is losing their independence. Hmm. And physical activity and exercise help maintain your cognitive abilities and your physical abilities so that uh, you can maintain independence and um, and have a better quality of life. Is is there a correlation? We, we're talking about physical exercise here, but there's also a lot of companies, a lot of apps out there that are touting the benefits of, of kind of mental exercise, games and puzzles and activities that are supposed to strengthen your mental acuity. Are these real as far as be- being able to actually strengthen your memory and your brain functioning? They have um, shown limited effectiveness, um, and the the bottom line on these uh, the mental games and et cetera are that um, if you're trying to practice um, with these games on your ability to uh, remember short-term memory types of tasks, then you're going to be really good at at those types of tasks. Um, so it's very specific. The training is very specific to the type of hmm. uh, cognitive function you're trying to improve. Um, but these um, games have not been shown to to translate into other domains of cognitive function. And so they do have specific benefits, um, but not um, generalizable benefits to cognition. Um, I can tell you a little bit about a project that yeah. we did where we compared these, if you'd like. Yeah, please. Um, so we, we did compare... Um, whether the degree to which people engaged in cognitively stimulating activities versus physical activity. And we looked at their hippocampi over an 18-month period of time, and um, we found that, and and their cognitive function, and we found that um, those who engaged in physical activity um, were more likely to have a preservation of cognitive function, and especially in those people who have this genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. Um, whereas we found that um, performance of cognitively stimulating activities had no effect at all over 18 months on whether their cognition was preserved. Interesting. Um, so, so if you're going to bet your time somewhere, bet it physically. Go exercise. That's right. That's where I would put my money. That's it. And especially if you have a history, which is important, because a family history. My, my uh, in-laws have a family history of Alzheimer's and we just lost my mother-in-law from it, who was the most physically fit human being you've ever seen, and yet, you know, there's still, I guess, there's still the, um, there's still the actual genetics of this that it might not be able to reverse, but it doesn't mean for the rest of us it's not worth doing. Absolutely. So you bring up a good point. You know, exercise is not a cure all for everything, yeah. and and certainly people who are very physically fit will get the disease, unfortunately. Um, what we don't know is whether or not um, your mother-in-law, for example, um, was uh, able to prolong her life and actually right. not get the disease sooner um, because of her physical fitness. So we may not be able to prevent it. 
um, but we may be able to delay its onset. Mm, that's that really is hopeful because I always thought, oh man, she's in such great shape. Now she's just going to live longer with it. But you you may be right. She may have prevented having even early onset of the same disease. Yeah, and there are there are other benefits as well. Um, so the quality of life that a person has is important. And even though they may be in this sad situation of losing their identity and not knowing who their family members are through Alzheimer's disease, um, their physical function, um, their uh, their levels of depression, their mood, um, you know, their um, their their agitation and frustration uh, that they experience through the disease process. You know, exercise may actually be helpful. And to, and managing those types of symptoms as well. Sometimes I wonder if we we have because it's so commercialized. It's so um, we we've set up exercise to be something that you've got to be you know rock hard, solid, abs of steel. Um, that many might be thinking, "Ugh, I don't think I can ever get that." But you're not saying you need to be crazy about it. You're saying just get the minimum requirements and get get your body moving, get your blood flowing to your brain. That's right, Matt. I think what people need to realize is that exercise and physical activity isn't necessarily something that has to be difficult or painful. It has to be um, moderately strenuous, and that doesn't have to be difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And mostly people need to think of it as something that they have to work into their daily routine, just like you would make time to take a shower and make a meal. Um, you know, if you skip those things, you realize after a while that you're not really feeling quite well and people don't want to be around you, for example, um, if you're not bathing yourself. So if you're physically active and if you build that into your schedule, like this is just part of my what I do every day to take care of myself, then then it becomes easier. Is And to the family side of this, it's, it seems like it's a it's a powerful lesson to hand down to your family that we stay active. We are active people and a habit of activity will always be part of our of our family because then we're also handing down a habit of, of healthier mental abilities. Absolutely. I, I completely advocate um, getting the family together, you know, getting outside, uh, biking, walking you know, hiking together, uh, you know, playing basketball as a family, you know, whatever your family enjoys doing, um, certainly, you know, get outside um, and, you know, get moving. Mm. What would you say as we wrap this up, Dr. Smith, um, for the person that right now heard your lesson, knows now that they can't just sit out and they they can't expect their exercise from yesterday to just pay off today necessarily. They've got to stay at it. What what should we do if we're going to get started in a new exercise regime today? Well, first, if you're older, um, you know, over the age of, of 50 or so, then you just need to make sure that your physician knows what you're about to start and that you're um, that it's safe for you to engage in activity. Um, most of, most people are going to be safe to be able to walk, and so I would say, you know, if if you can find a place to walk and somebody to walk with, that's a good place to start. You want to just um, start slow. You know, you don't. You just need to walk for maybe it's only ten minutes. Um, you can accumulate different bouts of exercise throughout the day. So maybe it's ten minutes in the morning. Maybe it's another ten minutes in the afternoon. Maybe it's ten minutes after dinner. Um, and so you want to just start accumulating this activity and build slowly. And you know, bring a partner with you. Um, bring a friend. Bring a spouse with you um, or a family member. You know, get encouragement because we need that. No, totally. Dr. J. Carson Smith, thank you so much for your great research and the insight into exercise and the impacts it has on our brain. Really, uh, you only get one brain, folks. 
Let's uh, take care of it as long as we can. Let's keep the blood flow into it. Dr. Carson Smith, again, is from the University of Maryland School of Public Health and uh, is currently researching how to prevent Alzheimer's. We will take a break. Come back. Stick with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Heather Johnson's joining us. Professor extraordinaire. She uh, she is also a parenting expert, marriage, motherhood expert. She does it all. Author, wife, and we call her Hadge. You're soaking in it. Ah, that's a great song. So Heather Johnson joins us. She is on faculty here at Brigham Young University and teaches parenting classes. Really, everything for your family. She wrote a book, Family Fun Fridays, that you can get on her website, familyvolley.com. Just a great resource for how to have activities as a family that bring you closer together. Today, she's going to be teaching us about some parenting practices, some styles you may want to avoid. Well, what tends to happen, which is really interesting, is when we start to have struggles with our kids, we're really quick to blame it on them, right? When our freshman in high school is struggling with grades or our daughter and I aren't getting along, whatever it might be, it's like we want to blame them. Usually that blame comes from the fact that we feel guilt that we've suppressed for long enough to, you know, avoid, to (laughs) punctuate on someone else. But the fact is when there's failure in our home with our kids and when we're having those struggles, it usually actually has to do with how we're parenting them much more than the fact that they're struggling. Hold on. So So you're you're blaming us instead of blaming the child? I know. Every time I come, it's all about us, isn't it? I'm miserable. But really, we tend to fall into these kind of patterns, these ruts where we parent in certain ways that actually bring out in them the things we don't yeah. like, the the disagreements, the bad grades, the frustration, the discipline issues, the uh, unwillingness to be obedient, all uh, of that coming from us. Right? Uh, let's hit them. So the first one is we've got to avoid paranoid parenting. <laughs> I am at fault at being a paranoid parent if I'm not careful. I have to be very cautious. I am the mom who – If I watch the news too much, I want to say no to everything. Don't climb the tree. Don't walk down there alone. Don't go get the mail. Don't go that. Don't. I'm constantly worried. If something goes wrong in the world, I want all six of my children to sit in the grocery cart so I have control of them (laughs) at all times. Mind you, they range 14 to 1. So that's a really tricky feat when we pull it off the store. So if you see us, you'll know it's me, right? (laughs) But we can't parent from a paranoid standpoint. Yeah. It really immediately undermines our children's ability or belief in their own ability to, one, do anything, to accomplish anything, to try anything. They're much less confident. Children are much more anxious when we paranoid yeah. parent, when we when we parent them from a paranoid standpoint. Anxious parents make anxious kids. It's exactly right. We also make kids who are afraid. They're afraid. They're less confident. They're more anxious. Uh, we know, too, that kids these days, these newer generations, they're more paranoid than any other mm. generation of children. They That's really sad. There's a paranoia in them, which means they don't ever feel comfortable actually going out and living. Right. And so they stop doing that. It undermines their ability to make their own decisions. And we pass those fears on to them. And so then they grow up older and they have to make their own decisions where they have to 
paranoid from normal. And That's so crazy. we set them up. So it gets really tricky. So a couple things we're going to do is the first thing we're going to recognize is that we have to engage instead of control. So <laughs> Darn it. we have to drop the control word. It's not about controlling our kids. It's all about engaging with them. And so if they come home with an issue at school or if there's a fear or concern, you know, in your community, something you're afraid of, instead of telling them what they're going to do and how they're going to handle it, we need to ask them what they think will work and allow them to give us a suggestion. And then the next statement is, after you try that, come back and tell me how yeah, it went. Yeah, return. Let me know. Let's Let figure know this out. Let me know how that went. And it's almost a script if you can start putting in your mind. Ask them for their own suggestions and then it really should be followed up with, give that a shot and come back and let me know how it goes. Mm. Put the control in their hands and then allow them to do that and be an engaged parent instead of a controlling parent. Also, we want to make sure that we control what we can, let go of the rest. Yeah. If you can control it, Great. That's something that you can control more. You can't control, you know, what's happened in another state. You can't control a war. You can't. And so those things, let go of them. Let go. Turn your energy and effort into engaging with your kids instead of controlling them. Okay. The next one we're going to avoid. We are going to avoid best friend parenting. Ooh, what do you mean? We are not supposed to be our kids' best friends. I hate to break it to anyone, but that is not our job. We are to be their parent and not their best buddy. Good. There is a huge difference. We need to be very strict at keeping those boundaries. It is not our job to be to be their bestie. That like is not that. what we need to do. And so we need to avoid this. Now, we start to do it because we think it will make them like us. Yeah. We think, oh, if we're buddy-buddy, maybe they'll listen. Maybe they'll conform. But it doesn't. It does the exact opposite. When we try to be their best friends, it actually drives them further away from our discipline, from our boundaries, from our rules. And they reject those things. Right. When we start to do this too, it puts them in a position where once those boundaries are confused, they no longer respect our authority. And that is really important. There is a reason why we have kids and there are parents and children. There's a reason for this in society because they need us. We know more. We have experiences. We need to lead them. We need to parent them. So no more best friend parenting. When it comes to this, we're going to come down or come back to setting very clear boundaries and limits. Very clear. Now, a problem we have as parents is we often don't make things clear soon enough. So our children get hit with a boundary or a limit or a consequence after they've messed up instead of before. And so a really great way to start doing this is set your boundaries beforehand. When you get bad or if you get bad grades, I shouldn't say when, if, you know, it's below a C, these are the consequences. We have curfews. If you're not home in time, these are the consequences. Set those things up so they're never broadsided. Because you you end up doing it reactively when they blow it. And if you do it reactively, they probably don't trust it as much. They're like... And we often, Where did that come from? It's exactly right. They don't expect it. And so that breeds confusion. And anytime we introduce confusion to our kids, confusion leads to instability. Mm-hmm. When they don't feel things are stable, they don't feel safe. Right. And so much of their life needs to be a safety issue. With us, they should always feel safe. Yeah. And so instability leads to that feeling of not feeling safe. So we're going to set really clear boundaries. When it comes to best friend parenting to get rid of it, we are going to stop oversharing So many times I'll meet with families and a mother will say, well, I told our daughter about this and this and this. And it's like, oh, my gosh, that is none of your daughter's business. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What happens between you and your husband in the bedroom has nothing to do with your 12-year-old. Don't bring that up. Right. And so it's time to stop oversharing. That's a sign you are 
you're a friend. It's exactly right. Parents should have a boundary that we don't talk. We it, don't tell them that. Right. And and we need if we need to vent, if we need to talk, then we need to find either a spouse or an adult where we do that. But yeah. involving our children in too much of the finance, too much of the intimacy, too much of the stress and struggle, that's not that's good. not where it goes. Remember too, we are throwing at them, we are sharing things with them that they're not emotionally and mentally capable of processing. And so it's not just about oversharing. It's that we're hitting them with these things that they don't know what to do with, which again, just creates a lot of turmoil yeah, for them. Exactly. Right. Give us one more, one more. What's one more rule, one more tip, uh, one you know, more watch out. Watch out when it comes to, let's do quick fix parenting. What does that mean? So it means that anything that happens, we're there to just quick fix it instead of keeping a, a long-term perspective. So this is being in the middle of Target and having your two-year-old throw a, a huge fit. And so we grab a sucker off the shelf and say, here, yeah. have this. Don't cry. Instead of saying there's consequences to this, abandoning your cart, who cares, taking your two-year-old out to handle the situation that's really going on. So this quick fix is where it's like, well, do you want a treat? Well, should we watch a show? Well, if you'll stop, I'll let you have this. Right. But in the long term, it sets us up for failure. They need to learn consequences and you, you need to be thinking long term. Right. And this one, this is where we have to stop worrying about what other people think yeah. and worry about our kids. It's right. so easy to think this is embarrassing. This is the situation I'm in. I don't want people to see this or I don't want to be the star of the show right now. But if we think about our kids more than the Joneses, it'll be very easy to yeah. make the right choices. Well, so that's no permanent, more. right? This is permanent. Permanent. And we think, oh, it's just one time. Oh, you know what? I'll just bribe you one time. Right. But really that one time – and we know this. We've all done it. leads to – 50 more times because one time is all it takes for them to throw the fit to know that they get a treat to stop. It, it's that fast. Well, that's it. Now they've learned mom's weak. I right. just need to fit. It's if exactly I throw right. the fit, I own mom. It's exactly right. And so do you think they're going to stop? They're not. They're going to do it again. They so, will never stop. Ever. <laughs> They'll be 50 or 40 <laughs> and still doing it. So that's no more great. quick fix. We have to keep in mind the long term. It's worth the stress and struggle for 10 minutes and you know hauling the kid out yeah. to deal with it than it is to go for years and oh, years and years of dealing with totally. it. Totally. Yeah. Heather, you killed it. That's awesome. Great advice for all of us. Go check out her website, familyvolley.com. Also, um, you can find her book, uh, Family Fun Fridays, and soon to be releasing Family Fun Saturdays through Thursday. <laughs> I'm so behind. You've got to get on it. <laughs> I know. I'm trying. <laughs> uh, thanks for being with us again, Heather. We'll be back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson. I'm here with Cole Wissinger. We are the hosts of Screen Cleaning, and each and every week we do our darndest to shine a big old spotlight on in all that is good in entertainment. We give you the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of entertainment, but we mostly focus on the good because so few shows about entertainment do that. We don't focus on any of the uh, the gossip or... You know, tragedies or scandals, although I'm sure maybe one or two may come up today when we talk about our summer at a glance, which is really what we're going to be doing on the show today. As of today, we are officially announcing that summer is over. Yay! Mm. Wait, you're not you're not excited about that. 
I, I love summer. Some bright, sunny, shiny days, swimming in a pool, no school, I guess, for people that that applies to. But you have to understand as a – I mean, you granted, you are at a school now and you are working here full-time at BYU. Yeah, as an adult that right. doesn't get summer vacations, it doesn't quite have the old charm that summer used to. But as a parent with young kids, summer messes with your head. Because you kind of lose track of when, you know, where you're at in the year because each and every day is still pretty much the same to you unless you're a stay-at-home mom and then you count the days until summer is over and when your kids go back to school. So I'm sure my wife is celebrating today and, you know, we'll do one last big hurrah as a family. I think we're going to try to go see Christopher Robin, which we have not yet seen. Thanks a lot, Movie Pass which we will also talk about here in a minute. But we do want to share some sad news. It was learned yesterday, or we learned yesterday, that Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, passed away. She was not very old. I thought she was older than she was, but she mm-hmm. was only 76 years old. Yeah. Um, it's. It seems like it's been a while since we've had kind of an, an impactful celebrity death, which is good news in that sure. aspect yeah. for the summer. But, yeah, we're sad to hear about Aretha Franklin. We talk about music and movies and TV here in Screen Cleaning. So sad to see her go. What's your favorite Aretha Franklin song, Jeffrey? Oh, it's got to be Respect. It's got to be Respect. That's her most known one. I mean, I performed that in, in show choir glee club back Did in you high really? school. Yeah. I didn't know you were in we, show <laughs> We need to have you sing on the show more, oh, Cole. No. Oh, Come no. on. Because we were doing a show that was all about the different decades, and so when we got to the 70s, couldn't talk about the 70s without something from Aretha Franklin. Oh, right. So name another Aretha Franklin song. Can you do it? He's cheating, I, folks. Well, He's cheating. of course. <laughs> no, but my favorite is Natural Woman. I think that that is just... Oh, that's her. That's Aretha Franklin. Okay. I think those are probably her two biggest ones that people are going to recognize. I well, would ha- there's I had no to arguing. Google for any other ones. That woman had an incredible voice, was an incredible performer, and she will be missed. Gone too soon. Mm-hmm. 76. It makes me think because my dad is 70, and, you know, he has had a recent health scare, and so – Anytime somebody passes away around 70 and early 70s, it really gets me thinking and, and worried. So hopefully nobody else goes that soon. There I mean, go. it's crazy to think, though, that there was a day and age when 70 was considered old age. That's a long life, yeah. And I, I feel like the the age expectancy has gone down a little bit from a few years ago, but 70 used to be considered old. But it's too young now. Uh, Another – not to say that uh, this person has died, but his relationship with a certain movie studio has certainly died. And it keeps having more nails driven into the coffin. We keep thinking that he's going to come back and then it's gone again. James Gunn, the director of the first two Guardians of the Galaxy films for Marvel – was fired due to some scandalous tweets. Um, And then maybe we thought he was going to come back, but the man over Marvel, Kevin Feige, announced officially that he's standing behind Disney's decision, which is what they had to... Once you make the decision, this is what you got to do. But they're standing behind the decision, and James Gunn is staying away from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So they're sticking to their guns about not sticking with Gunn. (sighs) Yeah. Um, 
It's it's interesting because you knew based on what preceded James Gunn's firing, you knew that there was no way they could hire him back. They couldn't do it because what happened with Roseanne Barr and all these other people that have been losing their jobs, uh, they've kind of painted themselves into a corner. So because if they hire James Gunn back, well, hey, why not hire Roseanne back? Hire everyone back. Yeah, right. It, it matters. I I mean, you can argue whether or not he should have been fired in the first place. But once you fire the man, once the tweets are out there, they they did what they had to do. Now, not that any of the cast can walk away. They've all been staunch supporters of James Gunn. Not for lack of trying as well. A couple right. of them have threatened that they would. Well, and they they can't really do that because they're in contracts. However, Dave Bautista did mention that he was going to ask to be released from his contract right. if they didn't at least use James Gunn's script for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And it seems like why wouldn't you use that? First of all, you paid the guy. <laughs> he may not be directing it, but you've already got something on paper. Why not just use that in, instead of wasting millions more to hire somebody else to write it? Right. And, you and know, it's probably pretty good. The least you could do is keep his name in the credits in some shape or form, right? Well, you can't. You never know. Well, yeah. I don't. I don't know. Do you feel like Disney wanted to fire him or do you feel like they just were forced into it? I wouldn't um, consider myself an expert on that. Um, Why not? And I, <laughs> I think that they needed to um, with the current climate. Yeah. And that's it. Well, and we don't need to discuss exactly why he was fired or, like you said, Cole, whether or not it warranted it. Uh, that's not the big issue. The big issue is – He's not coming back to the franchise. And now it's official again. So we're talking about big summer movies this day on Screen Cleaning. We're celebrating summer. And 25 years ago this summer, one of the biggest, biggest in size and in box office. Would you say it was dino-sized or (laughs) monster-sized? Jurassic Park. The first one, the good one, came out 25 (laughs) years ago. good one. This summer. that. And to celebrate its 25th anniversary, they are going to be re-releasing it in theaters. So young folks like me that didn't get to see the grandeur of the Brachiosaurus coming into the giant screen will be able to go back and visit it. That is super exciting. And one thing we're going to do here before we take a break is we're going to share, since we're looking back at summer this show, we're going to share our favorite and our least favorite news from the summer of 2018. And speaking of Jurassic Park 25th anniversary coming to theaters, this ties in with my least favorite news of summer of 2018. I very likely will not be able to see Jurassic Park, the original, in theaters. Thanks a lot, MoviePass. Now, I say that... Uh, We've been saying it sincerely for almost a year now. I say it bitterly, but I also say it sincerely. Yeah. First, let me get the sincerity out of the way so I can get to the bitterness. <laughs> I am sincerely grateful for all the movies that I did get to see on Movie Pass. It has reached a point where it's no longer feasible for me to use it, so I've canceled my account. Uh, It just seems like every day, every week, there is some sort of new restriction that makes it not even remotely worth it because the newest restriction of them all is that 
not only uh, can you only see three movies a month, but MoviePass will now dictate which movies you can see on any given given day. And the, the language that they use on their website is you can see up to six movies on any given day, right? Up to. If you go on their website and look, and they've got it to their credit, they they at least tell you it's not a surprise anymore like it used to be. Right. You'd show up and, oh, I can't see the movie I came here to see. At least now you know what you're able to see. However, if you look at the six films that are available on any given day, four of the six are independent films that are most likely not going to be playing anywhere near where you live. They're in a couple theaters in L.A. and New York, but nowhere in between. Right. Uh, So you really have two choices. And inevitably, one of them will be rated R, which I won't go see. Um, So I likely will not be able to get to see the 25th anniversary of Jurassic Park unless I switch to another movie plan, which is starting to look mighty tempting right about now. Yeah, we won't spend time on that. Was some all the of the sad options. news. I have other sad news from this summer, and it's that a lot of these streaming services are are pulling me in a lot of different directions. Over this summer, Disney announced that they're pulling out of Netflix and going to have their own streaming service in 2019. At Comic Con, we had the DC Universe and their TV properties announced that they're going to have their own streaming service that I would have to sign up for to see mm-hmm. Young Justice Season 3 or the new Titans or any of their DC movies that I enjoy. And I just – I don't want to have to go all of these different directions. I liked when I had Netflix and Netflix did it all for me. Cole, just do what the rest of us do and binge watch the show that you really want to watch in the trial seven-day period. And then you can cancel it. That might be what ends up happening. It's honest. There's nothing illegal or underhanded about it. They, I mean, they know that you're going to do that. In fact, when uh, Cobra Kai came on YouTube Red or YouTube TV, in their promos or their their little, uh, you know, commercials, their commercials mm-hmm. for upcoming episodes, they would have Ralph Macchio saying. Make sure to binge watch Cobra Kai during your free trial. You know, like they know people are going to do it. Because they think that you can – they can sucker you in. They have this one good thing and you get it for that period of time and, oh, maybe they'll have more good things. But they probably won't. It's really just that one thing that's getting you – Young Justice Season 3. Young Justice was one of my favorite TV shows. It's a good cartoon. It's got all the, the Teen Titans going on. Um, and they're going to bring it back, and I'm really excited for it. But that is not worth $7.95 every month sure. just to have watched it once. Speaking of Cobra Kai, I'm going to switch over to my good news, my favorite oh, please do. news of the summer. I'm not exactly sure when this came out, but I'm pretty sure I watched it during the summer. Cobra Kai is one of my favorite things of the summer because uh, it just – was really the biggest surprise of the summer for me. I'm not a huge fan of the original Karate Kid. I think it's pretty cheesy and dated, and I only really like the scenes with Mr. Mi- Mr. Miyagi in them. Um, so imagine my surprise when I pretty much binge-watched Cobra Kai, not on a free trial because I do have YouTube TV, and it was incredibly entertaining uh, I was actually surprised a little bit at the language. It's it's basically a strong PG-13 if you had to put a rating on it. But it was quite enthralling. And, I mean, it was I felt like I was watching 
a soap opera of sorts because there were so many storylines that were interconnected in so many different ways, each one of them, you know, just entertaining in their own right. But that's one of my favorite pieces of news from the summer is the Cobra Kai, and I cannot wait until season two. From Which has su- been confirmed. From success on the small screen to success on the big screen, my favorite summer news is that the box office is back. The box office was – there were a lot of reports about how people just weren't seeing movies anymore and everyone was trying to come up with a good reason why. But this summer – and this is what we're going to talk about whenever we come back to break – from break is – the biggest summer for money-making movies that we've seen in quite some time. Just to give you one little tease, one little stat from the summer box office, the new Avengers movie, Avengers Infinity War, Avengers 3, whatever you want to call it, (laughs) made more money in its opening weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, than the Justice League movie made in 2017. Avengers, if they had shut down the doors and not let anyone see it after that first weekend, would have been the 10th grossing movie of 2017 based on only four days of people showing up. Wow. And big thanks to it and some other big blockbusters is why summer of 2018 was one of the best summers we've seen for movies. So I just watched this uh, a couple days ago. I just got back from a cruise And that was the movie that they showed on the cruise was Avengers Infinity War. And every night we would eat this chocolate dessert. It was like a a melting or a molten lava chocolate cake, right, with Mm -hmm. ice cream. When the movie was over, my dad said that was like eating the melting chocolate cake for two and a half hours. So I guess what I we were to glean from that comment was maybe it was too much of a good thing. I don't know. No such thing as too much of a good thing. <laughs> but uh, speaking of tasty confections, I want to share with you – this is Cole. I told you I was going to have something a little unconventional. Okay. But uh, all things good we like to talk about here on Screen Cleaning and, you know – we, we often like to eat when we go to the movies and we eat when we're entertaining. So the greatest confection that I found this summer, I'm, I know a lot of people are huge fans of ice cream sandwiches, right? Uh, you know, just the standard uh, chocolate sandwich, ice cream sandwich people like. But then there are the, the ones where you, you get the baked cookies And a lot of people are big fans of those. But my problem with all of those is that usually one – either the ice cream or the cookie kind of cancels the other out and you can only taste one. It's usually overpowering, right? This is my opinion. Sure. But if you open up a Tillamook ice cream sandwich and specifically a Tillamook mint and chip ice cream sandwich. Okay. You're going to have two flavors that perfectly complement each other. You can taste them distinctly. Not uh, Neither one overpowers the other, and it is a little puck of heaven. And I say puck because that's about the size of it. It is a hockey puck. And it's just a chocolate on the inside of the of, – it's, it's a crispy, crunchy sandwich with mint – chocolate chip ice cream in the middle, and there's just enough of a salty taste to give you all the flavors that you want in a dessert. Tillamook Mint and Chip 
ice cream sandwich. Your best dessert of the summer. Yes. Do okay. you have any more favorite summer news you want to talk about, Cole? I think that's it. I'm, I, I'm excited to talk about the box office. Well, as we go to break, I will share my absolute favorite news of the summer, mm-hmm. which is that my favorite show, Better Call Saul, which I am enjoying season four right now, has officially been renewed for a season five. So at the very least, we'll get just as much Better Call Saul as we did Breaking Bad. And I can't wait to see if they're going to show you Saul Goodman post-Breaking Bad in its entirety, in an entire season is, is what I should say. When we return, we're going to continue our look back here at summer 2018 with a closer look at the numbers of 2018 at the movies. This is Screen Cleaning. That's our strutting music as we strut back in at this look at summer 2018. And I Cole, thought it was summery and bouncy sure, for you. Sure, yeah. And Cole is super excited to give us a snapshot of the box office of 2018. Now, we don't spend a lot of time with box office numbers on screen cleaning. It's just we're not that kind of show, right? But, I mean, it is significant in that, I mean, this has been a big year for movies. And a a very unique year as well. And if we're ever going to look at it, it's going to be during the summertime. Right. Because even the movie executives understand that it is the summertime that they put out their big movies. And this is when money actually matters. Money always matters. It's a business. Sure. But this is when money really matters in the movie business is during these lucrative summer months. Can I just make one comment? And I'm just going to put it out there. You don't need to respond or anything. But I wonder – I just wonder – if MoviePass had anything to do with these huge numbers at the box office this summer. And I'll talk a little bit about it. Okay. So, first of all, we need to define what we're calling the summer. And what I define as the summer is from April 26th until today. April 26th to August 17th. Yes. And I do that very conveniently because April 26th was the Thursday that Avengers 3 came out. Aha! Normally, if you go to box office websites and look at historical facts for how the box office does, they define it as the first weekend in May until Labor Day. That's their definition of the summer movie season. This year, Avengers preempted that summer by one week. And they were originally going to come out in May, right? Right. They were originally slated for that first summer of – first weekend of the summer, quote unquote. Which messed up Rampage's uh, release date. Exactly. Because they got scared, as they should be. Everything tends to shuffle. And so – Because that's what I'm defining it, in order to compare apples to apples, I went back and looked at and did some math and statistics for you. Okay. Because I care about you. (laughs) To really, truly represent what this summer means. So from April 26th through that that last weekend in April through the third weekend in August or whatever it ends up being each year, this is the second most lucrative summer all time. You're kidding me. After last year was – was a very down year and was the worst in about five years. This year brought it back and is the second best of all time. I guess when once you go through what the top ten movies are, it won't be too surprising. Correct. And so – and there will be a theme in mm. these top ten movies. Let's see if you can pick it out. Okay. We had Avengers 3, Incredibles 2, 
Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, Jurassic World 2, Jurassic Park 5, whatever. Yes. Deadpool 2, Solo, a Star Wars story, Star Wars number 10, if you want to see it that way. Okay. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Ant-Man number 2, Mission Impossible Fallout, Mission Impossible 6, Hotel Transylvania 3, Summer Vacation, Oceans 8, the fourth Oceans movie, okay. Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, Mamma Mia 2. Those were the top 10 movies of the summer. Yes. Well, obviously, they are all sequels slash spinoffs. Correct. Wow. For the first time in the box office's history, a top 10 ends the summer with all sequels. Interesting. Wow. Every summer, I mean, I went and I went back quite a few years until before the sequel craze started back in the mid 90s, and I could not find a single different summer where we had all 10 of the summer movies were all sequels. This is the first time ever. Okay, don't tell me the numbers for each one of these films, but go what what made the most of of those and how much and what made the least of those and how much? So, so Avengers, here. yeah, Avengers obviously made the most money. Um, it it made quite a bit. <laughs> um, it's in the six hundred million dollar range domestically. That's a, that's a nice payday. And then Mamma Mia, here we go again is a little over a hundred million, and so, it's still in theaters. And it's still it's still going to make a couple more. And so we've got all ten movies over a hundred million dollars this year. I mean, just look at those two movies alone. You have a film franchise that is based on comic books, which have been around for decades. Mm -hmm. So just think of the staying power of comic books and people's interest in superheroes. Then look at Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, one of your favorite movie titles of all time. Absolutely. That shows you the staying power of ABBA, which we've been enjoying their music for decades as well. You know, another interesting thing, I on this cruise that I went to, we did karaoke. And somebody, a group of people from my family got up and sang Mamma Mia. I was looking around the room trying to get a feel for who was singing along. And I was looking at a lot of the guys. Even the guys were singing along. That's how good ABBA is. Oh, I love like, ABBA. It's guys aren't embarrassed to admit that they like ABBA. Why should they be? It's good music. Now, what are you implying, Jeffrey? How many of those guys have actually seen the Mamma Mia movies? I would be one of them. Not this guy. Two thumbs pointing to me. They are they are really good. They're musicals. You saw both of them? Yeah, of course. Wow. Interesting. I mean, good for what they I mean, they're not serious movies, right? But they're really good musicals. Okay, you know what's interesting there? Of those 10 movies, Yes. I think we heard two kids' movies. Well, it Hotel depends. Transylvania 3 and Incredibles 2. Two animated movies. Okay. If that's your only definition of what a kids' movie has to be, Jeffrey. Well, I'm not taking my kids to – my kids are young, so my oldest is six. Right. So I really am not taking her to PG-13 movies. However, the one PG-13 movie I did try to show her – because I remembered it being somewhat tame, Solo, A Star Wars Story, we ended up leaving about two-thirds of the way into the movie. She was tired. She was kind of scared. And so I had already seen it. 
So, yes, young, young kids, it's always tough to have any movies marketed to them. I went back and, again, looking at the box office, this is no – this is not that much different. You've been lamenting the death of animated movies all all summer long. Not necessarily the death, but just the lack <laughs> the of – The lack of them. But as far as big budget ones, as far as the ones that kind of creep up into the top ten, we generally average two animated movies in the summer top ten every year. There's always a Pixar movie and then there's a Hotel Transylvania or a Despicable Me or one of these – or a Shrek even going back into the early 2000s. It's generally only about two a year, two per summer anyway, that we see. Now, I'm going to make one more observation there. My six-year-old really wants to watch Ant-Man. And I remember Ant-Man maybe being a little too much for kids that age. But when my wife and I sat down and watched Ant-Man and the Wasp, I distinctly remember thinking, this is a kid's movie. This is like Marvel's first kid's movie. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of running around. There's there Paul are, Rudd being goofy. Right. I mean, the bad guy is not necessarily a bad guy. They're just – there's not much of a threat in this movie. It's all silliness with no real sense of danger. Right. And there's so, no – like even that bad guy, they're not trying to, to kill anyone. It's not these big bad kind of stakes. Sure. They're just kind of – Nefarious. They're it's just, goofy. It's cartoony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if it wasn't for you know a couple of choice swear words that I would not choose to say or have my six year old here, it wouldn't have even been PG thirteen. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, okay, it gets us back to this lament and or this lamentation about kids' movies or the lack thereof. How is it, Cole? Explain to me how you brought up a really good point. Why on earth aren't we seeing more kids' movies during the summer? Because the box office doesn't care about your kids. (laughs) They care about kids that are 13 and up because they're the ones that can really bug on their parents or even go by themselves to the movies. The real demographic, if you're a movie producer and you want to get a ton of money during the summer when kids are out of school, is get the ones that can get themselves to the movie theaters and don't have to rely on their parents' schedules or their parents telling them, they can go. So that's why you get a lot of PG-13 dumb action where where kids that are in high school and college will go and see it a bunch of times because they have nothing but time on their hands. How much did Incredibles 2 make, though, opening weekend? Like $150 million? Yes. Something crazy like that? I think I honestly feel like it may not have made so much money had there not been such a long wait leading up to that. If you for didn't a kid's have movie. the college kids going back and revisiting their childhood. It's still college high school and college age so people that, that the box a, office is going. That's after. a factor. But yeah. up to that point, there was no animated or kids movie for months. Months. And I think people were really hungry for that. Having said that, I wouldn't necessarily now that I think about it, I don't know that I would call Incredibles two a kids movie because I took both of my kids to it. They were both terrified. They're both sitting in our arms halfway through the movie saying, I'm scared. My six-year-old said, this movie is scary. I never want to see it again. I'm going to have nightmares. And it all – this is where you – as a parent, you got to know your own kid. Because sure. when I was six years old, I was watching every Star Wars movie on repeat. I was watching <laughs> Independence Day and Jurassic Park over and over again. Those – when I think of family movies um, and – 
I, I toyed around. We're going to talk about some of our favorite movies of the summer. We probably won't talk so much about family, but I thought Skyscraper was a good family movie because that's what I remember watching with my parents. Like a big, dumb action movie with a really charismatic star and a family element because that's what I remember watching with my parents. Skyscraper will come up later. Big, dumb movies will come up later. And uh, let's do that first. Excuse me. Let's take a break. And when we return, we'll talk Big Dumb. We'll talk Skyscraper. We'll talk Family Fun here on Screen Cleaning as we take a look back at the movies of summer 2018. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning, where we're taking a look back at the summer movies of 2018. Cole and I have already discussed some of our favorite and least favorite news from the summer in entertainment. Cole has just done a breakdown of the top ten movies of the summer of 2018. Money-wise. Every single one of them was a sequel or a prequel or a spinoff. And uh, I'm sad to say it's probably going to continue on that way from here on out. And MoviePass may or may not have had something to do with that, so it'll be interesting to see what happens next summer when people are no longer using their MoviePass. But right now, we want to take a look back at some of our favorite movies of the summer, and we're going to start out with the biggest surprise of the summer. Cole, what would you say was the biggest surprise for you at the movies? Mission Impossible Fallout. Really? So I am a fan of this franchise. Not quite as much as Fast and the Furious if you want to compare two kind of big action movie franchises. But Mission Impossible leapfrogged Fast and the Furious in my favorite franchises this summer. Whoa. Which is big news because I love that one. But you you weren't expecting to like it or you weren't expecting expecting to love it? Mission Impossible is almost my favorite movie of the entire year so far. And I just thought it would be another movie because Rogue Nation and – um, the the more recent ones have just been good action movies. This one was amazing. I expected to like it, was surprised that I loved it. My goodness. So you mentioned Rogue Nation. After seeing Mission Impossible Fallout, I think I liked Rogue Nation less because all of a sudden it became more of a placeholder film. A setup. Right. Mm-hmm. A setup, if you will. My The biggest surprise for me... There were there was one big dumb summer movie that I was really looking forward to and we'll talk about it here in just a minute. But this was not the big dumb summer movie that I expected to enjoy as much as I did. Now that's not to say I didn't uh, make comments throughout and didn't think it was ridiculous throughout, which it was, but it was a big dumb fun summer movie that I happened to enjoy quite a bit. And it was Skyscraper with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Now, this is the film that people very rightly so uh, compared to Die Hard because it's basically a clone of Die Hard. In fact, even one of their posters, they cloned the Bruce Willis poster from the original Die Hard as, you know, a tip of the hat to the original. But uh, it was quite entertaining. The action sequences are over-the-top ridiculous, but... Very engaging and fun. And I will say there was an action sequence that even though it was riddled, it was just full of of CGI, 
It had my stomach going a little bit. It had my stomach in knots. It's the scene where he's Get your climbing. your palms sweaty a little bit, Right. Too. He was climbing the crane to jump onto the building. And I guess maybe I'm just terrified of heights because, I mean, I experienced something very similar in another Mission Impossible movie when Tom Cruise is climbing the Burj Khalifa. But uh, it had or me Tom going. Cruise is climbing a helicopter, or Tom right. Cruise is climbing the scaffolding in an opera house, or Tom Cruise is climbing. Right, and you know from the trailer of Skyscraper that he's going to make it okay. But for some yeah. reason, just being that high up and seeing how high up he is, it did something to me. That's fair. I'm a little dizzy now, but that's more of the uh, the cruise talking because I'm swaying all over the place. Uh, if I had to choose an honorable mention, though. I'll mention it very briefly because it's it's not very good content-wise. Life of the Party with Melissa McCarthy. I was just expecting it to be just like all of her other movies, and it pretty much is. Um, but she's a little more likable in this film. She's not so mean or mean-spirited. She's actually trying to get people to be nice to each other. And there were some genuine laughs in this film. Well, and if I can look ahead for a second, if summer's ending, that means school's going to be starting. And next week... I think you'll hear a little bit more of Jeff talking about Life of the Party when we talk about back to school on screen cleaning. That's true. So I won't say too much more about that other than I was surprised that I kind of liked it. There you go. Uh, Now we want to move on to our biggest disappointment of the summer. And I'll start off with this one. I mentioned another big, dumb summer movie that I was really looking forward to. Another one of those films that had a great trailer – But the execution just wasn't there. There were plenty of executions, in a way, in this film via a giant shark. And we're, of course, talking about the Meg. I loved the trailer. All this mayhem is going on while Beyond the Sea, the song, is playing in the background. Very clever. And clever marketing for this film, too. Unfortunately, it just didn't live up to my surprisingly high expectations for a movie about a giant shark. I think that it's your own fault that you're disappointed with this one. You're probably right. Um, yeah. They're just it, – it wasn't silly enough. If that seems strange, go see it and you may agree with me. There's six different Sharknados if you're looking for silly sharks, Jeffrey. Well – This one didn't have to be silly. There were a couple of honorable mentions for Biggest Disappointment. One was Leave No Trace, a an independent film that I basically – I think it has 100 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I was really looking forward to talking about it on screen cleaning. Had I liked it, I just didn't know how I was supposed to feel walking away from it. It was depressing. I – I just don't know what the big takeaway was. It's about this father and daughter who were – they live out in the woods. It's its by choice. This father is a, kind of a victim of PTSD, and so he's got some some psychological issues that his daughter does not. They get caught. They have to go back and live in with the rest of society. She starts to warm up to everybody. He does not, and uh, it's – Incredible acting and how you're never, ever going to see a PG Ben Foster movie ever again. So I figured I had to go see it and maybe go see it for that reason alone. But it was a bit of a disappointment for me. And, Cole, this is going to ruffle your feathers or maybe it will ruffle your wings because I was a bit disappointed in Ant-Man and the Wasp. Oh, Which is saying something because one of my top five favorite Marvel movies is the original Ant-Man. 
And I think the reason I was disappointed was it just there was there the stakes weren't very high, which is interesting because one of my one of the things I like about Ant Man is that it's not this fight for the universe. The stakes Small are much lower scale. Ah, very good, very good. But I just I don't know. It wasn't as funny to me. Uh, all of the sight gags you saw in the trailer, and I guess it was just a little forgettable for me. So therefore, one of my disappointing films. I was disappointed with Slender Man. Um, it was a oh. PG-13 horror movie, which we always get one of during the summer, and I always look <laughs> forward to getting to talk about here on Screen Cleaning. This one was a mess. It is six years too late after the big hype of Slender Man being a real, well, a real fake horror entity. Um, Did, were you doing air quotes or should you have there? Yeah. It, okay. it was an internet phenomenon that Slender Man may or may not have been real and then they wanted to make a horror movie out of him. It ended up being very messy and, and very, very bad. It, it's probably the worst movie I've seen this year. Really? quality-wise, wasn't that good. And I always, I always go see the PG-13 horrors because I want to talk about them. This one I have to talk about in a bad way. Well, Cole, take comfort because – there's at least one PG-13 horror movie coming out, and it's Happy Death Day 2. There you, so you and have that to look I loved to. the first one. Yeah. So now we want to move on, as you said, to our favorite action movie. So I want to let you go first on this one. I loved the one that made the most money. It is Avengers number three. The really? Infinity War. More? It was, it was uh, your favorite even more so than Mission Impossible. Well – Mission Impossible would take a lot of these categories, okay. but I had to spread I it out. I was okay. surprised with Mission spread Impossible. Spread out the love. Avengers I wasn't surprised with because I got exactly what I wanted out of this one. Okay. Two, more than two and a half hours of just constant, the biggest heroes on the planet doing action things, fighting each other, and fighting the biggest bad that they've had in this universe yet. And it was wonderful. So – Mine you already talked about for favorite action movie was uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. Anytime – and we've talked about this on the show before. We'll talk about it again next week. Anytime the the main actor is fully committed, giving 100 – even 110 percent, that's mathematically impossible. But you watch this movie and you feel like Tom Cruise is giving 110 percent. He's giving every last drop of – blood, sweat, and tears, and it shows on film, and it's just a marvel to behold, and several... I think Avengers was a marvel to behold. Uh, Man, you are on fire today. Um, Several key action scenes of this movie that will really take your breath away. Uh, Oh, yeah. I I love Mission Impossible as well. If I had to make an honorable mention, it would go to Incredibles 2. I know it's an animated film, but I thoroughly enjoyed Incredibles 2 as well. Obviously not as good as the first, and the main reason for that was just that the villain wasn't as good. Otherwise, it was quite good. The Incredibles do have some impressive action that goes on, seeing Elastigirl kind of fight in a unique way. And because it's animated, they can do whatever they want. I sure. That's a good action movie. So we, we talked a little bit about family movies or the lack thereof. We mentioned Incredibles 2, which is obviously the – I would say is the best family film of the summer if I had to choose one. And you would say it would be Skyscraper. I mentioned Skyscraper because that's the kind of family movie I grew up with as well. I'm still scratching my head over that one. <laughs> the Rock loves his family. It's so nice. 
You know what? So does uh, Ryan Reynolds in Deadpool 2. He loves his wife. Well. I wouldn't call that a family movie. And unfortunately, true. there are probably some young kids that ended up in the movie theater for that one. Beware of comic books. Scratching my head all. over that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but let's move on to the worst movies of the summer. Now, I'm going to say one that you're probably not familiar with and I wish I wasn't familiar with. Okay. It is a film called Son of Bigfoot. Now, I had originally put Hotel Transylvania 3 Summer Vacation, which is my honorable mention, but then I scratched that one out when I remembered that I had seen Son of Bigfoot and I was – I cursed – I cursed that – or I will rue the day that I saw it. I saw it at a movie theater where we paid full price with my family and – As we were watching it, it occurred to me, wait a minute. I think this movie is already out on DVD. And sure enough, I looked it up and it had already been out on DVD and we had paid full price for it for this film that was utterly forgettable. And I did not mind the fact that my one-year-old was off the walls crazy and I had to take him out of the movie theater. So I don't even get to see the last third of it anyway. Uh just people running around for an hour and 20 minutes. Hopefully it wasn't longer than that, but not <laughs> one that you need to see. And surprisingly high reviews on Rotten Tomatoes for Son of Bigfoot. Hotel Transylvania 3, a close, close second to worst movie of the summer. I really hope they stop making these films. And I I, I know we try to focus on the positive on the show, but I, I just want to make a petition for good kids movies. It's bad enough that we don't see enough kids' movies. It's worse that we don't see enough good kids' movies. So those would be my worst for the summer. I think that to see the good in things, it's a credit to how good this summer was that my worst is Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the fifth installment there. (laughs) Now, again, Slender Man, I think, was worse, but that was disappointing. Sure. This one, though, it was pretty much what I wanted out of it. It was a little confusing and and was a little um, bad plot-wise towards the end of it. But for a worst movie of the entire summer, I think Jurassic World was pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, Cole, you, you were, you were one that was able to see the good in the summer movies this year. Absolutely. And I applaud you for that. Uh, Now, speaking of the good in summer movies, Cole, what was the best movie of the summer? My favorite movie of the summer, my favorite movie of the year so far was a little film called Eighth Grade, written and directed Uh by Bo Burnham. Um, I can't in good conscience recommend his his comedy, his stand-up to everyone from a family-friendly perspective, but his movie, although officially rated R, is only done so for a couple of language reasons. It is a very in-depth look at eighth grade from an eighth grader's perspective, embracing all the awkward moments that come with eighth grade. And I think that I would recommend eighth graders to see it. And it is the most awkward period in a person's life. Middle school can be rough. Yeah. My favorite film of the year, earlier in the year, Cole had made an observation that he had never seen a documentary in the movie theaters. In theaters, yes. And I really had to think hard before I finally came up with one that I had seen in the movie theaters. And since then, I've seen a couple. And my favorite movie of the summer is one of those documentaries. It is 
Won't You Be My Neighbor? Yay. The story of the life of Fred Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. This is a film that must have had really good word of mouth. I think a lot of people were choked up even over the trailer because you could hear the audible – you could hear people talking after this trailer played and, oh, people saying, oh, I want to go see that. That looks great, you know? And I did see it, and it was great. More so in that I I got to learn about Fred Rogers, whom I didn't know that much about prior to seeing this film. But uh, even more – I left this movie feeling like a better person or feeling like I wanted to be a better person, like I wanted to make changes in my life. Not that I felt like I was a horrible person, but he had this ability to make people want to be better people. And I love how people made the observation during the movie. A lot of people wondered about him. Is he this way in real life? And the answer is Yes. Yes, A resounding yes. yes. There were two movies this summer where after I walked out of the theaters, I called my parents to either thank them or to give them a recommendation. And they were eighth grade and Won't You Be My Neighbor. Good for you. These movies, both of them had such a a strong impact on me and from, from a wanting to be better kind of way as well. Yeah, any movie that can get you out there to to act is a good thing, in a good way anyway. Which, really quickly, we want to make another observation about documentaries. You mentioned, Cole, this is the year of the documentary. Oh, yes. And especially the summer. They all kind of came out. Right. I just made just a quick list of some of the big documentaries of the summer. Some of them were on Netflix, but most of them went to the movie theaters. Evil Genius. They made a movie about John McEnroe. Uh, Not the same movie. Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, R.B.G., Ruth Ruth Bader Bader Ginsburg, Ginsburg. which did quite well at the box office, Robin Williams, Come Inside My Head, The Staircase, Three Identical Strangers, the other uh, big documentary that I loved, Whitney, Wild Wild Country, and of course, Won't You Be My Neighbor. I would have even one more to add. My favorite documentary of the summer was called Bobby Kennedy for President, another Netflix. It's a four-parter, so it's a little longer than a movie movie, but it has an in-depth look at Robert F. Kennedy's tragic demise on his pathway to Mm. the presidential election. So there you have it. A look back at the summer movies of 2018 and do yourself a favor and check out some of those documentaries. This was the year of the documentary and boy, oh boy, were there some good ones. When we return, as always, we're going to end our show with our Panning for Good segment. There's good in them dire hills. You know, I've mentioned the cruise I just got back from on the show a couple of times here today, and I'm going to... I'm thoroughly jealous. Yes, yes. Well, I also on the cruise had some time to do a little bit of reading. And for somebody like me who loves to read but doesn't necessarily have the time to read, I've been trying to do a lot of short stories. You know, they're, they're, you don't have to – it's not a big commitment. You can just pick up a book here and there and, and finish an entire story and feel good about yourself. Have you ever heard of Charles Beaumont? I don't think so. Charles Beaumont had a very short career. He died at 38. But in those Oof. 38 years, he had created 
such a huge string of hits. And it's an unfortunate thing that people don't necessarily know who Charles Beaumont is. But if you're familiar with the Twilight Zone series, the original, then you're probably familiar with Charles Beaumont, who did some of the classic episodes, wrote some of the classic episodes of the Twilight Zone. I dug into a collection of some of his short stories, and I was thoroughly entertained, sometimes creeped out, sometimes intrigued, but never disappointed at the stories of Charles Beaumont, whom uh, people praised uh, the likes of uh, Richard Matheson. We also mentioned – I've mentioned on the show before – and Ray Bradbury himself. They were all very good friends. So do yourself a favor. Look up Charles Beaumont and his short stories and maybe even some of his Twilight Zone episodes that he was responsible for. That's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. We'll be back next week to give you the very best in entertainment.